are living in the wake of the Matildas effect. There has been no office conversation, lunchroom discussion, of, you know, barbecue situation that's occurred over the last little while, I'm sure, without people having to know that, you know, about the World Cup, the Women's World Cup and the, um, the Matildas. Not quite victory. It's been, you know, the absolute talk of the town. And certainly the success of the Matildas in terms of their um, record-breaking, the record-breaking viewing of their games has been, you know, has been something to to really digest and has been a substantial break from the sexist downgrading of women in sport. Women everywhere, I think, around the world, but um, certainly women I know are identifying with the battle to be taken seriously in a world dominated by sexist ideas, you know, and that kind of call to celebrate with the hope that new generations won't have to deal head-on or without models or examples with the same invisibility and with the same hostility is something that's definitely appealing. And I will say that it's all the more so for for queer people, for women of colour and the fact that Sam Kerr is a a queer woman of colour is now a 100% mainstream, nothing short of a national hero, is kind of mind-bending. Like it is just, it's something that a lot of us would never have fathomed, particularly in the world of sport which, you know, has very good reason for having a reputation of being the breeding ground of the most damaging homophobia in society, to have documentary series uh, foregrounding uh, a woman in a gay relationship, for women to have their partners, their female partners and their kids running onto the field with them, for that to be not something that's cringed at or hidden away, but just part and parcel of why we love the Matildas, you know, is, um, I think, something that people are genuinely feeling like is at least a sign of progress and, and taking some hope from. But in stark contradiction to that, just as we're celebrating ourselves, patting everybody and at least the professional women athletes on the back for the progress uh, that's been made, Rubialis, sexist sexual assault comes along like right at the point of victory you know he was treating the um jenny uh sorry i've forgotten her last names uh but treating her as a trophy literally as a trophy kissing her as if she is the object that he owns and controls denying her assertion that there was no consent for that kiss, refusing to back down, just digging in entirely the aggressive sexual moves that he was making all throughout the game and the way that this has played out uh, is just such, if not a reminder of what the um, what women's sports people and women around the world are up against. It's also a reminder of, you know, what it's an uncomfortable sign of, of what sports still represents and what, what there is still in sport. And it It's not the only uncomfortable sign that female athlete success is not necessarily a straightforward success for a woman or even a straightforward success for themselves. Uh, We saw the abuse of Ellie Carpenter um, in the Matildas um, and the allegations, it's kind of been hidden now, but the allegations from at least two former players in the Matildas in 2021 of a toxic culture of decades within the Matildas and the young Matildas. The allegations are that Football authorities failed to curtail incidents of abuse, bullying, body shaming and intimidation. 
Uh, the, play, the Matildas Union has revealed that existing and former Matildas have received abhorrent abuse on social media, including homophobic comments, threats and the circulation of private images without players' consent. Um, nutritionists sent in in the wake of these allegations to support the team have openly and publicly decried the obsession among the Matildas players and their coaches with body composition um, leading to disordered eating. Uh, the FA conducted a review uh, which was completed just before the World Cup, which essentially swept the issue under the rug, uh, referring to matters to the police and saying, basically, we're, our work here is done. So it's not something that's just about Spain having a sexist society. It's a, it's a sign that victory for the Matildas, even at that very elite level, where they're smashing all of these glass ceilings, grass ceilings, I'm not sure what you call them, even at that level, they are subject to the most horrendous sexism and ideological pressure. Sports can play host to social struggles like we saw, you know, over the last little while. And C.L.R. James, the um, Marxist historian who grew up in a racially stratified society of uh, colonial Trinidad, described how social and political passions denied normal outlets, expressed themselves so fiercely in cricket and other games precisely because they were games. And over and over again in history, we've seen plenty to relate to when sports stars representing oppressed minorities either succeed or win against traditional oppressors or upset the expected social hierarchy or even better still when sports stars openly reject racism, sexism, imperialism and take their message beyond the game or, or in some cases to the heart of the game like when uh, the Netball Diamonds, the Australian national netball team refused to continue to accept Gina Reinhardt's sponsorship because in solidarity with one of the Indigenous players who basically said this is genocide money and we won't take it, um, which, you know, which was a, a, a profound act of solidarity and anti-racism. Or Craig Foster, for example, many of us know in the refugee campaign, has given amplified the voices of refugees and, and taken a platform that soccer players have and that he has within soccer to an anti-racist field. But in this talk, I will argue that sport itself is a creature of capitalism. It's an institution that is created, owned and controlled by the ruling class. This talk will examine the way that sport is used with equal part cynicism and ideological fervour to create profits and to bolster nationalism and other morals deemed appropriate by national and corporate leaders. And so while there will be contradictions and challenges to conservative ideas from within sports, there are severe limits on the social change to say nothing of the prospects of liberation that can take place within and via sport. I'm going to start off with um, where sports came from because there's a, a really fascinating history by Tony Collins who argues in Sport in a Capitalist Society. It's a really great book. I, I cannot recommend it enough. He argues that people have always played games and the impulse to play is, a vi is vital to human culture as, and as vital as the desire to sing, the urge to draw, the need to tell stories. He says it's a form of physical exhilaration, group solidarity or downright sheer pleasure. Games are common to almost all societies in almost all periods of history. But the methods of play and the meanings ascribed to games are very different from what they are today. And the word sport probably doesn't describe them. Previous, in previous society, games were unlikely to have specialist players. Winning was often not the purpose. Uh, games may have had ceremonial, ritual or religious purposes. 
Collins traces the beginning of modern sports to around the 1750s in Britain, where a fundamental shift in the nature of the three most prominent British games, or what they were beginning to be sports, was taking place, horse racing, boxing and cricket. He said these were distinguished by the emergence of generalised rules of play, their ability to systematically and regularly generate revenue. They were becoming commodities, which one might pay to watch or paid uh, or be paid to play, or upon which one might gamble significant large sums of money. So it was just this new kind of explode. Well, this new development of sports as these formal um, and generalizable uh, games was just one of many examples of the explosion of commodified labour time that was developing because of the industrial revolution when leisure time started to exist in relationship to work time. Alongside the development of sport, writers and journalists and print capitalism itself drove sports development and generated profits and its reporting shaped its place in culture. The idea of sport fit with the new ideas from Adam Smith, the kind of Robinson Crusoe Darwinian, particularly in America, this sort of Darwinian survival of the fittest ideas and the metaphors about sport reflecting life started to develop. The idea of a level playing field, of transparent competition, of may the best man win. Sport dovetailed with the newly dominant conceptions of an inherently competitive human nature. Collins writes a a really fascinating chapter on the actually quite violent eradication of traditional games because these (coughs) games were either too unwieldy, they took up too much space or they took up too much time in a newly urbanising and industrial world. So, you know, when the literally the commons, you know, were disappearing where large amounts of field and space, long periods of festivals, etc., were being eliminated games that took place on literally much smaller pieces of land in much shorter um, organised time frames were necessary. And there's, you know, particularly the, the concern that the, the games that um, workers were involved in were considered too violent or not sedentary enough, and so there was a real um, assault on them by the middle classes and by the ruling class, developing ruling class. Football developed particularly in the in the second half of the 19th century after industrial production had stabilised from the years earlier in the century. So industrial production required skill and that required a healthy and relatively content workforce. Saturday afternoon holidays opened the way for popular sport and these started to be kind of founded or pushed um, and, and, and cultivated by churches but also by industrialists. So Arsenal, for example, was formed from workers at the Royal Arsenal in Woolwich and lots of other uh, clubs had their origins in teams including West Ham United, Manchester United, some from the Wollstone Shipyard, Sheffield Cutlers became Sheffield United and so on. So the, the bosses essentially were creating their own teams and deliberately forming football teams. The spread of sport into the working class from above was central to the creation of a respectable working class following the upheavals particularly of the post-Napoleonic and Chartist years. Sport over these decades began to reflect working life more and more and fit within the discrete commodified leisure time. Um, And there were a few key components of it that started to be common across all of the, um, all, all sports. So firstly, competition, trying to be the first, beating an opponent or to do better than the others, so setting a new record. 
the notion of a record as central. So this reflects a society where everything is measurable and quantifiable. Sporting scales of value, which are precise, hierarchical and obvious to all, and training, which is the hard labour of sport. Training in this period, but you know, we have never seen anything like it in, in many sports. It's increasingly inhumane and based on techniques very similar to the production line, involving the same inhumane work. Um, workplace. There are a couple of well, there are so many other similarities that you can draw on, and it's not, it's not a mistake that the ruling class also draws on these similarities. So, um, an increasing division of labour in inside team sports and teams themselves, reflecting um, the organisation in the workplace and so on. Uh, but why do people want to play sport, and what's the attraction for the working class? Adorno points out um, that the promise of sport is the liberation of the body, humiliated by economic interests, the return of the body, the return to the body of a part of the functions of which it had been deprived by the industrial society. So sport restores to mankind some of the functions which the machine has taken away from him, but only to regiment him remorselessly in the service of the machine. So alongside this development, sorry, is that too bleak? I saw a few faces, it's too, too much. So alongside this kind of mimicry of, of the workplace is, is so foundational to sport is nationalism and imperialism. So in place of those traditional games that I was talking about, the British ruling class very consciously cultivated a new nationalist and masculine sports culture. Boxing was at the heart of this initially, but cricket and other sports then went hand in hand with preparing men for military victory, especially initially against the French Revolutionary Napoleonic Wars. You had the muscular Christianity of, the, of England's mid-19th century public schools and their aim was to turn out great men in a system based on the survival of the fittest. You had the rugby school, school days, etc., um, where this was very, very consciously anti-woman, not just left out women, but it was anti-woman. Don't talk about your sisters, don't talk about your mothers, you know, be a man. Soccer at this time was codified by ex-public school boys in England. Obviously, public schools means private schools. <laughs> and the first written rules were drawn up okay, by Cambridge University. Uh, so they controlled the, the um, sporting federations and, and the, the, the wealthy controlled, controlled the rules and the games um, and the play. In the imperialist countries, sport played an important role in bolstering nationalism. So, for example, Tour de France helped create the idea of a French nation-state in Italy. Football became a symbol of Italian nationalism. C.L.R. James says in Beyond a Boundary, he shows how cricket was used in the British West Indies to disseminate ideas central to maintaining colonial rule across British colonies. Cricket was spread across British, uh, Britain's empire, just as US imperialism ensured baseball became the national sport of Cuba, Puerto Rico, Mexico, and much of Central America. Um, you had the Olympics, obviously, as well, organised around nations and competing against each other. And look, just there's a there's a lot that I'm missing here, but just to bring it up to the present day, FIFA is obviously and the, and the World Cup that we saw, you couldn't mistake the nationalism that was just dripping from the the green and gold and the you know the the media commentary, which so which is so continuously nationalistic. Uh, one journalist said, you know, that the Matildas effect was nice nationalism. It was patriotism shorn of macho posturing. Sports has once again demonstrated its ability not just to raise our spirits but to lift our game. Um, and another said, as excitement about the Matildas' progress grew, World Cup viewing parties sprang across Australia. We couldn't bear to be physically apart as national pride drew us spiritually together. 
and it's a conscious strategy from the Australian government. Um, there's a document called Sports Diplomacy 2030, which the government produced in 2018, but it still kind of follows, which is just incredibly racist. The content of it, it just smacks you in the face. It talks about Australia harvesting the natural talent of our Pacific neighbours. Uh, talks about increasing trade and economic opportunities throughout the Pacific in particular through events and increased presence. And in the decades ahead, it says, Australia will have to work harder to sustain our influence and secure our interests. Sport is one of Australia's key soft power assets and can play a leading role in strengthening partnerships and, and promoting our, brand, our national brand. So it is, it's so conscious. It is so tied to the um, Australian ruling class's agenda. So the, the other part of it that just smacks you in the face and, and you know, like, could you, could you even open your eyes and look at the television without seeing 12 different logos at once? Cadbury, Nike, News, uh, Combank Matildas, the stadia themselves owned by different corporate sponsors. Corporate sponsorship has always been the lifeblood of, of all spectator sport and even, um, for that matter, most grassroots sport today. A cursory glance at sports business news since COVID shows just how cynical the promotion of women's sport has been. It's globally accelerating and the, the prototype for brand Matildas was made in the USA. So the Washington Post put it, the cost of entry to stream or broadcast women's sports remains relatively low. The players are also deftly marketing themselves, often on social media, proving their viability to advertisers at a time when consumers, especially young ones, value sporting women's empowerment. So, you know, based off the this, this I think mimics a lot about uh, of what we saw with the Matildas, a group that um, includes Silicon Valley venture capitalists funded funds just launched a new national women's soccer team um, in Los Angeles, citing specifically the expected return on their investment. We build a team like it's an enterprise software company, said Kara uh, Nortman, a co-founder of the team and managing partner at Upfront Ventures. We have investors who are amplifying our brand sponsors coming to us to reach an audience that isn't the NFL. Sports is a prized asset. Men's teams are expensive. For us, there's this energy around building something and buying it at a price that could literally rise in value 10, 20 or 30 fold. So one of the participants in this venture project produced a documentary about the women's national team fighting for equal pay, which was recently bought by HBO after a bidding war. We wanted to tell the story of women's soccer team, not just because it's a universally resonant story, but because people love this. It was a commercial proposition first. So the monetizable social media accounts of female athletes exceeds that of men, and so the kind of interest in, um, in what the Matildas were producing and producible for the corporate world was just phenomenal. And the Anyway, the, um, I won't go on about it, but it, it kind of it kind of is a miserable sort of situation where even the idea of equal pay, which you know the um, is is such kind of like narrative of the Matildas and so many women's sports teams, is turned into this monetized commercial prospect that's also tied up inevitably in pursuing sponsorship and p pursuing more corporate sponsorship so that they can compete better um, with men for branding and so on. So while it's on the one hand relatable to so many working women, it's just completely, it has this other dimension that is just also so cynical. I'll just end, thank you, I'll just end on the sexism. So the branding of the Matildas as outsiders, as women pushing the boundaries, was both cynical and true because the truth is that football has a history and a present of being 
like I, I genuinely think that sports, it's, it's hard to think of an institution that more viciously defends the gender binary than sport does. The role of women in society as mothers, carers, and not as ruthless, brazen, and more self-interested, competitive, and risk-taking and aggressive, you know, men is, is something that it, women's sport sort of challenges and destabilises. But, you know, we, we saw that what the Matildas give with one hand, the, the, the corporate sponsorship and, the, and the, the, the discourse around it takes with another. So the docuseries about the Matildas and the commentary to make them palatable went out of the way to show how nice, how lovable, how kind, you know, how generous to the other team, how much they like babies, um, you know, how well they're good family members, they love getting their nails done, like the the sort of um, the femin- the feminisation of them um, kind of came at the same time. Because sports maintains that division jealously, as you know, as we as we saw so shockingly with Casta Semenya, um, you know, who was subjected to the humiliating physical examination and the blood tests. The IOC, FIFA, retains the right to determine another person's gender. They determine. They they say that they they have the right to determine whether a person is male or female, and therefore whether they can compete on which side. So, you know, just to finish, while we're unequivocal in our opposition to the sexism that, you know, women athletes are subject to, there are severe limits to the demand for more women athletes on our screen or, or to get the more corporate sponsorship or for more, even for more young girls to play sport. To have re- real freedom from the limiting expectations about what women's bodies are capable of and to feel the real joy from our physicality, to feel the real joy from playing and to feel the solidarity of collective crowd action, we need to challenge the capitalist foundations upon which sport is built.